Womanhood is a podcast created to give voice to all women's experiences, which are typically stigmatized or silenced in society. I'm your host, Mimi Healy. Welcome to the Womanhood Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me as it has been quite a long wait um, for this episode to come out. We've taken a little bit of a hiatus here and I'm so excited to be back and especially with such an amazing and inspiring woman as our guest today. Our guest today is Natalie Roby Tingo. She is a human rights activist, economist, and the founder of Mishana Empowerment Korea, an organization which she created at 19 years old. Her work centers around ending violence against women and girls in all forms. She has received numerous awards and recognition for her work. Most recently, she was featured as part of UN Women's Generation Equality, which you can find online by typing in her name, and I will also link in the show notes. Mishana Empowerment Korea is an organization in southern Kenya which works to end female genital mutilation, or FGM, and child marriage. Through empowering women and girls, their work focuses on ending violence and poverty on the local community level, and they do this through women-led programs, after-school programs, providing safe spaces for girls, educating and leading discussions in the local community, supporting access to menstrual care, and providing safe shelters for girls who are fleeing gender-based violence. You'll hear more about it on the episode, but here's just a little look into it. The mission of Mijana Empowerment Korea is to help build a better world where women and girls are self-fulfilled as individuals and play a constructive role in society. Currently, 200 million women and girls alive today have undergone female genital cutting. In Africa, 3 million girls are at risk of FGM. FGM is most prevalent among 30 countries in both Africa and the Middle East, but does occur everywhere, and it's very important to in in ending the stigma against FGM and raising awareness and education about it to recognize that it does not only just happen in these countries but can take place in many other countries, especially among immigrant populations. So without further ado, Natalie Roby Tinko. once again for having me here on the womanhood podcast my name is natalie roby tingo i am from kenya and i am a girls rights uh, activist i am passionate about um, girls issues and intersectional issues of gender uh, young people and passionate you know interested in work around gender equality and reducing inequality and um I am the founder of Mschana Empowerment Korea. So Mschana is a Swahili name for girl. And we are a girls and young women-led nonprofit community-based organization in rural Kenya. Our work is girl-centered and we partner with girls um, to, to, you know, to contribute towards development. And within the Korea community, 
we are working to end female genital mutilation, uh, improve access to healthcare, um, education, and social justice. And we have been we have been in existence for six years now, and I have been an activist for this is my eleventh year as an activist. No, my my tenth year as an activist. Wow. It's a long time. That's incredible. How did you become interested in doing this work? Um, so yeah, it's now it's now going to be 10 years since I became an activist. I think the first realization of, wow, what I'm doing is actually activism or um, it, in, it involves speaking on behalf or creating spaces for girls and women was... Mm-hmm. You know, um, some time back, I would say like five years ago, but it began when I was 19. So about about uh, now, I'll, it will be 10 years in, in August when I'm turning 29. And for me at that time, it, I didn't think what I was doing, you know, was anything ordinary, extraordinary, sorry, because I just wanted to, to be there for girls. And how I did that was when I was, I was in, I had just joined, at the university at that time and every time we would close school I would I would get my friends to give me their leftover menstrual pads and I'd also carry some of mine and I would sell I'd sell clothes to be able to fundraise for more menstrual pads and uh, so in us in the school system we have long holidays so during those long holidays I would then um, meet up with some of the girls in the local primary school that I went to and at first, it was I would I would I would um, I would give them the menstrual pads. We'd have discussions around menstruation, because also education is a very important thing to me. Um, so after after a few after a few actually after about a year, I realized that the girls who were in that that class that I that I was engaging with didn't transition to the next class. When I asked them, they're like, "Oh, uh, some of the girls got cut and they got married." So I began to gain an interest. And then that also allowed me to have a reflection on my life as a young girl because I I am born in I'm born from I'm, I come from the Korea community and almost ninety percent of the girls in Korea undergo are subjected to female genital mutilation, which is the cutting of their genitalia for non medical reasons. And in most cases, it is it is it is um, it is believed to be a, a cultural norm where once the girls are mutilated, they're supposed to get married. So um, due that experience allowed me to reflect on, on my childhood and how, because I was not cut, I became discriminated upon. And that's something I even blocked through my teenhood up to that time. So yeah, I think that's just how it began. And here we are, 10 years later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. wow. Something that sounds so simple and it's obviously made such a huge difference in so many lives of women and girls. Um, So I guess just from the very beginning, you know, you mentioned female genital mutilation and sort of why it occurs, but um, I guess if we could just talk a little bit more about that, like in your community, you said it's happening at such large rates. In Kenya, the Korea community has one of the highest rates of FGM at 84%, according to a recent report by the Kenya Health and Demographic Survey. This means that 8 out of every 10 girls 
as young as eight years old are at risk of being cut every single year. Is it an economic motivation primarily that's causing female genital mutilation to occur through marriage, you know, child marriage, or is it, um, you know, does it like revolve around ideas of purity as well? Or what would you say is like the motivating factor why it still is occurring? Right. Um, so the World Health Organization describes female genital mutilation as any form of cutting um, or any uh, alteration to the female genitalia for non-medical reasons and their various types. So we have type one up to type four, and um, all of them, all of them involve, you know, are involved cutting one form or part of the female genitalia. So in my community, which is a rural community in Kenya, is called Kuria. And in the Kuria community, up to up to up to 90% of girls below the age of 18 are subjected to female genital mutilation. Over the years, um, the, the, there's been change in trends. So I would say over the past five years, like the age of cutting has really gone lower. For example, before that, girls used to be girls used to be mutilated when they're about 12, 13, and now the cutting age has gone lower to about seven or eight. And I'll shortly tell you some of the reasons that are contributing to that. Mm. So just to even talk about my experience, around, around the age that I've just mentioned, between 10 and 11, most of, my, of the people who I grew up with were mutilated. And of course, because the narrative you're told as a young girl is that uh, you're, you know, you're going to bring honor to the family if you get mutilated. And the fact that I was a firstborn, that played a very big role. And then secondly, um, you know, girls are gifted with, with, with gifts um, when, when, they're, when they're mutilated. So for instance, you find a girl who um, never had a pair of shoes, she'd probably, they'll probably buy her a pair of shoes. And of course, there's a, lot, there's a lot of pomp and celebration during the cutting ceremony. So as a young girl who, um, you're seeing this and all you're seeing is, is the flashy things, that's what you'd want. Mm -hmm. And that's how most girls end up getting cut. So primarily within the Korea community, FGM is done as a, is assumed to be a rite of passage. It's assumed to be a cultural activity, a, communal, a cultural and communal activity where people will come together and eat and do all sorts of things. And majority of the girls end up getting married. Mm -hmm. uh, has, has, the, has the practice changed? Yes, it has changed over time, like I said. So for instance, in Kenya, we have the anti-FGM law that prohibits the female genital mutilation. And that's why you find communities like mine have now shifted and they're now cutting younger girls because younger girls cannot run away. Younger girls have no idea. Even if you told them, uh, we'll buy you a pair of, you know, a, a, a dress or something, they will agree and they will not question it. And then we are seeing now um, more and more uh, you know, like for instance, initially then it was, girls used to share razors for the cut, and now more, you know, every girl goes with a razor to the cutting place. So yeah, those are some of the things that things that have contributed or have, have since changed. And what has remained the same is that it has not changed the severity of the cut. It has not changed the impacts that come with the cut because when, when you cut a girl's genitalia, they're both physical and emotional, uh, you know, impacts that live with them for a very, very long time, mm -hmm. possibly until, until uh, you know, when they 
you know, when they're old and even when they die. Yes. Mm, yeah. Uh, and um, I'm interested kind of going off of that and what you were saying earlier too, of you felt kind of like, I think you said discriminated because you weren't cut. Um, do you find that that's still something that's occurring? Like for girls who either are old enough to refuse and, you know, like run away or I suppose have some sort of way to say no. Um, do you find that there's discrimination against girls who aren't cut? Yes, yes, yes. It's still alive. Um, you know, it's, it's a reality today. Mm -hmm. And that's why the work that we do at Mischana Empowerment Kure is very important because we are making sure that in, in across villages, right now across 30 villages, we have safe spaces where girls who are, you know, are either at risk of FGM, child marriage, are able to find a community. I'll give you, I'll give you a story of, of a girl who, because she had no, she had no choice, she had to get mutilated in 2018. So there's a girl who was part of our program, mm -hmm. and when when the, when 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 the cutting time came in 2018, um, I spoke to her recently, and the one thing she told me, um, Natalie, the one thing I wanted was just to get over and done with the insults. She was tired because her mom had even been threatened that they were, they were going to kill her mom if she doesn't get cut. The, um, there was already, you know, it was just, it was just too much. She was being insulted. Her, her, and you know, being that she's the firstborn, uh, even her younger, even her younger siblings, you know, could insult her because in the community, um, that is, that is something that is normal, you know, mm -hmm. like you'd even find even a, a woman who is not cut cannot go in some places because if she goes there, they're going to insult her for not being cut. Even the younger kids would do that. So mm -hmm. what she says is that in the morning of her cut, the one thing she said, she's going to get cut because she'd never want any of her sisters to be subjected to the same. And she literally walked kilometers to go and get cut. Her mom didn't want, because her mom, her mom already knew, you know, the implications of FGM. But for her, she said, you know, the one thing I want is just to, the humiliation to stop. And at that time, unfortunately, at, at that time I wasn't I, I wasn't present because I was I was I was giving birth to my daughter at that time. And mm -hmm. one of the things I even I even told I, when I came back, I told my community is that you took advantage of the fact that I wasn't around. You took advantage of the girls and you like and you know those those there were, you created a myth around um, you know girls not being safe. And it's very and that's why I think what I'm just trying to say is that. Uh, girls are, are feeling threatened and it's because sometimes when we don't have support systems to support them then they're not able to really feel confident about their decisions so you find a girl like this one who had to sacrifice herself for her younger siblings is a reality and that's a reality of so many other girls who don't even are locked out are in isolation and they don't know that some of these safe spaces exist and that's why it was important for us to make sure that we have these safe spaces where girls can find information where they can always, if they are triste, they can raise an alarm and they know how to. So for instance, in every, in every safe space, they're able to, you're able to use your, you know, to, to create a sign and somebody would know you're not okay. And one of the young women champions will make sure that you get help. So that is one of the ways that yes, girls are, are discriminated upon and they're at risk, but they are, there's, already help, there's already hope 
and there's already opportunities for them to get uh, support. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is so hopeful to hear, you know, what your organization is doing. And it's so profound to hear the stigma against girls who are um, not tight. It's kind of counterintuitive, I guess, to me personally, as someone who is a white woman living in the U.S., you know, it's, it's like the stigmatization of women and girls is so multi-layered and it's interesting to see how the norms and expectations of women and girls can be so locally dependent and it's not you know what is equal on in one place is equal in another and it's it's interesting to hear that about the uh, girl that you were talking about just having this stigmatization and humiliation and uh, the choice that she made to have that end um you know is it's heartbreaking and also you know you can only like i can only imagine just how how intense that experience is and um you know i'm kind of like speechless just because it it's just so multi-layered um but so going off of that i'm wondering you've told me a bit about uh the organization and could you tell me what steps are taken through Mishana Empowerment Korea to end FGM and child marriage. I'm not sure if like you could like walk me through, you know, some of the things that you guys do in the community or um, how, however you'd like to explain that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. So, uh, wow, where do I start? <laughs> so I think, I think one one of the things that we strongly believe is that girls have a very important stake in especially ending FGM and child marriage. We have seen girls, and one of the things, and additionally, when in, in, we have proven that when we support girls, the decisions are more sustainable because when a girl understands that what happens to them is sexual abuse and that nobody should touch their genitalia, mm. that becomes a very strong conviction for them. And even if, even if they're held down and cut today, that is a girl we are certain will not cut her daughter. And that's how we end FGM. We believe that the current girls have the opportunity to end it with our generation. Mm. And it doesn't have to flow to the next generation. And that's how we end it. So a couple of things we were able to do and just also to emphasize that all our programs are girl-led and girl-centered, girl-led in the sense that girls participate in, in all decision-making processes of our programs. For example, in the girl safe spaces, this is one of, this, this is one of the inventions of the girls. And they're like, in, sometimes we, you know, our office can only be in one village but we have almost hundreds of villages across the community. How do we get girls to, you know, to, to be connected? And the safe spaces is one. So in these safe spaces, um, you know, there's, there's opportunity for mentorship. There is opportunity to learn on sexual reproductive health and rights. So issues around menstrual health, issues around reproductive health, um, you know, sexual education, and, and that covers issues around abuse and how to identify that and, and where to get help. So these spaces also are opportunities for resources and information. Um, so, uh, and then 
beyond that for any girl who is who is who is who has um, like um, additional needs we able to support them directly so for instance uh, during covid especially we provided girls with direct cash transfers to their family to be able to take care of you know urgent issues that you know they could um, because of the changes or the economic shocks that they had they couldn't we've been able to support you know directly support girls with with education and we have found out that um a simple thing as menstrual menstrual care is able to enable a girl to attend school a simple thing as a decent school uniform is able to improve on their confidence and even allow them to stay in school because you'd find a girl has a very has a torn uniform which has a like a, a very big patch in her, on her behind and that lowers her self esteem even just going to school she wouldn't and she falls back behind and the moment she's at home she becomes an easy target for, for marriage and one ticket for marriage is fgm so mm-hmm. those are some of the things and you talked about the like the multi layers or the, the other things that are underpinning fgm and things like um you know things like poverty or things like inability to 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 be in school um contributes to to fgm because the you know your family will see you as somebody who is not capable uh, you don't seem smart enough in school and they'll be like why are we wasting our money to pay for this kid can she just get married and give us cows mm-hmm. another component that we have in in our programming is women uh women you know strengthening the women's movement and women empowerment because one of the things again we have found out is that when women have an opportunity to make an economic uh, decision they're able to uh they able to take care of the families better and mm-hmm. that also contributes to decision about fgm because for most women and even even um i know there's now a conversation around male engagement which is very important but the people who start who start um you know speaking to girls about fgm are the women the people who organize the ceremonies are women and if the women are able to have and they would do that out of wanting to you know to the best of their kids and that is also comes out of economic needs because if your daughter is married they'll give you a cow or a goat and even during that ceremony people will bring you gifts but that is based out of economic needs that the families have so if women are empowered economically they are able to support their community the support their girls by you know the girls and even other children so that the boy is also in the family mm-hmm. and that contributes positively to ending fgm and then largely we now in uh also the the fact that the women are engaged they're able to support the decision of the girls so the girls make the decision then everybody else supports because now that's more sustainable and then now at a larger community level we understand that the community also needs to be prepared to make a shift and that's why we have com- non-judgmental community dialogues which involved uh which involves bringing the community together and to have conversations around um several issues Uh, that are affecting girls and that's how you find in most cases we don't go to preach the community about you know you need to nfgm because of this and this and that but allow the community to come to a point of realization that fgm is 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 wrong uh it is wrong because it takes away power from the girls it is sexual abuse and it physically and emotionally damages uh their well-being yes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do you find that those 
conversations are going, you know, like you mentioned uh, male engagement in the issue as well. Like I think sometimes, and I hope, you know, to be sensitive to this topic of FGM can be, it's obviously centered around uh, women and girls because it's occurring to them, but how have you seen in your experience male engagement in the issue and has it been, you know, well received in the community so far? Um, I think what, first of all, it's everybody's responsibility that um, we watch out for each other mm-hmm. and we watch, we make sure that everybody lives a dignified life. And that's why I think it's important for men to be part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Not not for any other reason or for the reason that um, men are assumed to be decision makers in homes. I think for me, it's important to acknowledge that girls, girls need to live a dignified life and FGM doesn't do that. And when we take it as our collective responsibility as communities, as families, as human beings, then I don't think it will become an issue. But then I also strongly believe that the people who, whose bodies are cut, in this essence, the girls, should be the center of the conversation, should be at the, at the lead to be able to, to know what is happening. Because we've also had cases whereby um, parents don't want their daughters to get cut, but the girls want to get cut because they're like, you know, they've, they've not gone through a process of understanding what happens. So yes, I, it is, it is our collective responsibility. We all have to show up. We all have to make sure that, uh, and in this case, our children, because when a, when a girl is below 18, she is a child, our, child, our children are protected. But mm-hmm. also make sure that we center the voices of the most affected when you're doing all this. Yes, definitely, definitely. And um, one thing that I, like you've kind of touched on, but um, has been reported in the COVID-19 pandemic is that FGM has been rising. Um, Why do you believe this is? Um, That's true. That's true that um, COVID has contributed. But I I just don't want to focus on COVID. I would like to Mm. focus, I would like to just share about crisis in general. Okay, yeah. And this is what happens. Each time there's a crisis, whether it is drought, whether it is uh, the family has lost income, either through sickness or death or, um, you know, those war or something, the people who are most affected are women and girls. Mm-hmm. And that's why you find now girls end up being looked as commodities in homes. And that's exactly what happened with COVID. What COVID came and did is that it was a it is a health uh, health crisis that ended up being an economic and a human rights crisis, and you'd find that, um, especially I would like to center around what what I experienced, uh, in my in my community between October and November, more than four thousand girls were suspected to have been mutilated within four weeks, wow. and this is why, initially. The cut should have the cut the cutting ceremony happens in November and December, so it already being pushed forward by a month is an expression of the this you know like the anxiety that the community had, mm-hmm. and already before that month before that there was already rumors running around the community around 
you know the the, the pandemic is a curse um it is it is brought by our way of life and one way of of, of you know paying tribute to our, to our, to our cultural rights is is through fgm another thing during that period there was an increase of girls getting pregnant and they were like oh my gosh we're going to have a flux of girls being pregnant and we can't have and the one thing that a girl dreads is to get pregnant when they are uncut and all those tiny factors contributed to you know the rise in teen pregnancy uh the, the uncertainty that comes with um that came with the crisis um you know of course the fear the myths and misconception all that contributed mm-hmm. and pushed a lot of girls and even their families to cutting you know to to cutting them so and you know for the queer community and even if you went and checked just online it's a very public ceremony mm-hmm. where girls are cut and paraded across the road and and all that so yeah i think um that is one of the ways that the crisis was able you know contributed to an increase in in the cuts and also just just to show that you know what um there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of community response how then do we respond effectively to girls who are in distress and how do we get them to safe spaces as opposed to um you know the 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 common way we have been doing things yes mm-hmm. as natalie mentioned fgm and rates of child marriage go up during crisis situations and the covid-19 pandemic has been no exception the traditional circumcision of boys followed by the circumcision of girls is a huge cultural event in Korea. In 2020, almost 3,000 girls from the Korea community underwent female genital mutilation despite the government crackdown. Natalie was quoted in a Guardian article saying that sometimes the organizers of a cut will dress young girls as boys undergoing circumcision to disguise the large number undergoing FGM. Kenya outlawed FGM in 2011, but it's clearly still occurring, and activists in the community say that the government must address one of the root problems, which is poverty. A lot of these families rely on gifts from female genital mutilation or child marriage to economically sustain themselves, especially in times of crisis. And it's imperative that we acknowledge this and that the government take action. In terms of giving girls the safe space and empowering girls and women, in your experience uh, with the organization, what are some of the things that you've learned that is the most successful in empowering women? Is it through like these safe spaces or education or a whole, I mean, you've kind of touched on it, but I guess specifically, what are some things that you've seen that have been the most empowering for women and girls? Um, That's a very good question. Um, I think for me, one cannot be without the other. Well-being is, is a lot of things together. And for us, we really, we, our biggest, biggest aspiration is to have, you know, girls, you know, girls and women having an opportunity to, to realize their full potential, however mm-hmm. that looks for them. And one of the ways is, of course, to end violence. And FGM is one of the extremes form of violence. So, um, uh, well, another thing also as, as, um, as sociologists, as activists, as community workers, 
measuring measuring social change or measuring social change or social behavior change against FGM is is still something that we are learning how to do. But then we can measure other things in terms of education outcomes that girls have, economic outcomes that girl that girls and women have, health outcomes that girls and women have. And that's way that's I think those are some of the most significant ways we have seen. For example, in my in, in the organization, um, uh, in our organization, we have more than a hundred girls who have graduated primary and they're now in secondary school and they have not undergone FGM. That for us shows that uh, education plays a very big role. And whether in formal education through the safe spaces or formal education through the, the, you know, the, the state curriculum contributes. And then um, also we have, we have um, through one of, our, one of uh, the projects we did where we piloted with 100 women on economic empowerment is that we've seen that out of those, out of out of the hundred women, almost ninety percent of them were now engaged in various economic activities. They're able to to support their families and to and make you know positive decisions towards abandoning the cuts. So all these outcomes are contributing to the main, to the the key goal of you know improved well-being of women and girls. And one of those uh, sort of indicators is an end to FGM. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, that's that's so great to hear, too, what you said about um, 100 of the girls have now gone from primary to secondary school. And I think it's just such a testament to uh, all the work that you've been doing is clearly having a really large impact. Um, so that's that's really beautiful and great to hear. Um, so I guess to kind of wrap up, I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, I'll just ask some final questions. Uh, So you've mentioned what you believe, you know, needs to be done to end FGM. Is there anything that you would sort of say or would like to say to listeners um, in terms of like something they can do to support your work or raise awareness for FGM and educate others on FGM or resources that you know of? Um, If there's anything that you'd like to say kind of regarding that and how listeners can support you, I'd love to, you know, help in any way in that regard. Um, Thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, There's several things we can do. Uh, One of the things also is acknowledging or Yes, acknowledging that FGM is not only a one community problem. It happens across the world, as we have come to know. It happens across all continents. So I think one of the things also, um, you as a person knowing that maybe you could be living with a neighbor who uh, has been affected by FGM. And one of the ways you can be able to support is if there is any conversation in your country about FGM, you know, just, um, contributing to that and um, um, secondly um, you, you know um, we, we share our work online on all platforms so um, kindly support us by by you know just being part of our community we are partners with global giving and in the next couple of months we'll be participating in an online fundraiser 
to support a thousand girls who are affected by female genital mutilation. And in that, we have various ways, like we I just mentioned initially, to support to, towards healthcare, education, and justice. And we hope that we can get more people support us that we can we can do the work that we're able to do. And just to thank everybody who has walked the journey with us, who has believed in us, who continue to hold our hands and who allows us to learn and to, you know, to always go back and question and also allows us to create some of these, you know, the amazing work we are seeing with all the girls. And of course, just to thank you so much for the opportunity. I've had a lovely discussion. It's been a long time since I had such a such an amazing discussion. Oh, I also just thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. I wouldn't end this without just thanking everybody who has been part of the journey, my team, uh, the partners, our online and offline community. Um, I'm really grateful to everybody. I'm just one person, but the people who make the magic happen is a lot, a lot of people. So yes, including you, that you've now uh, allowed me to be in this platform. So thank you. You can find links to Mishana Empowerment Korea's website in the show notes. That is M-S-I-C-H-A-N-A Empowerment Korea, K-U-R-I-A. You can go on there and find more information about FGM, the work that they're doing in the local community, various information about their programs, and you can donate and support in different ways on their website. You can find Natalie at Natalie Roby, R-O-B-I, on Instagram, and Mashana Empowerment Korea on Instagram. Please don't forget to follow Womanhood Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And thank you so much for listening.